Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network, encouraging you today to not only be praying, but to share your prayer request with us. How can how can we pray for you? Prayer is our direct connection to God, one of the most underutilized gifts or tools that He's given us. So how can we pray for you? You can you can let us know and we'll add you to our Faith Radio um, prayer list. You can text or call us 877-933-2484. You can share your prayer request online at myfaithradio.com. I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to each and every one who participated in last week's spring fundraiser here at Faith Radio. Thank you. Your generosity is extraordinary. Your partnership in this gospel ministry is essential. Not only Could we not do what we do every day in this listener-supported ministry without you? We wouldn't want to. So thank you. Thank you for doing your part. If you missed out on the spring fundraiser and you still want to participate, there's still time. You can text the word GIVE to 877-933-2484, or you can always give online at myfaithradio.com. I am acknowledging this morning um, some very, very deep grief. This is a um, this is a death that took place on the 27th of April, but the headline news is covering it not only across the country, but around the world today. Deep, deep grief this morning. Um, Iowa City, Iowa and Khartoum, Sudan are this morning in mourning. An American doctor, Iowa native Bushra Suleiman of Iowa City, was killed in the fighting in Sudan's capital city, where his parents lived and where he served as what I will describe as a genuine healing agent of grace in an utter sea of human need. You will say to yourself, why was he there? Well, his dad is on dialysis and he went to care for his aging parents. His wife was with him and their younger children, his older children, are in Iowa City. And you say to yourself, well, why didn't he leave? Well, he stayed not only to look after his parents, but his patients at one of Khartoum's last functioning hospitals. He stayed on purpose and he stayed for a purpose. Suleiman was one of many doctors who kept showing up um, regardless of the threat. Um, And he and other doctors in Khartoum not only treated the wounded, they delivered babies, they provided other urgent care until finally that hospital was shut down as well. In the midst of looting that is taking place across a city that is in now such deep distress, in the midst of, I mean, I will describe it as a civil war, um, people are doing whatever they perceive themselves as having to do um, to get what they need. And in a city of five million where nothing is open, a roving band of 
people um, surrounded Dr. Suleiman in his yard on Tuesday, the 27th of April, and stabbed him to death in front of his family. And um, authorities, um, yeah, I mean, they're just acknowledging that this is it's not just tragic, it's senseless. He's got a friend who's a Sudanese doctor who practices in Pittsburgh, a close colleague of Dr. Suleiman. And he said, sometimes I would ask him, Bushra, what are you doing in Sudan? What are you doing here? And he would always say the same thing. He would say, I, li- I love the United States. I love living in the United States. But the United States healthcare system is very strong and one more doctor or one less doctor makes little difference. But in Sudan, everything I do has so much impact on so many lives, so many students, so many medical professionals, literally the future of the country. And so in reflecting on his death and this loss, I read you um, another quote today as well. Um, and, and it is in the spirit of um, this is, this, these murderers did not just kill one person. They killed thousands of people by killing this one. They killed the students who were studying under him. They killed, um, I'm I'm trying to find the direct quote, but they've killed thousands. They've killed all the patients he would have ever served and saved. And they have most certainly killed his family as well. So let us pray today. Um... Let us pray for Dr. Suleiman's wife and younger children who are still in Sudan. Let's pray for his parents. Let's pray for the thousands of other Americans um, still trapped there. Um, And let's pray for uh, those who are evacuating many. So the U.S. did successfully evacuate hundreds of private American citizens like the Suleimans living in Sudan over the weekend. Um, as dual uh, factions continue to fight in the country's capital of Khartoum. So this was the first mass evacuation effort by the U.S. for non-governmental citizens, and, um, and it's, a, it's a harrowing journey. They escaped in a fleet of buses um, that are being protected by armed drones as they make the 500-mile journey um, to the sea, where then they board ships to cross the ocean. Yeah, we're going to... Um, we're going to continue to pray for what's happening in Sudan and other hot spots around the world. Elizabeth Newman is going to join us next. She's a security analyst, um, and uh, she's going to come with us. We're going to talk about classified documents, and we're also going to talk about just the threat assessment of the world in which we live right now. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Elizabeth Newman is back. She's a security analyst. There are lots of things we could say about her, but I will just um, engage in conversation with her also as my friend. Elizabeth, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. It's so good to be with you. It's so wonderful to have you. Okay, so um, topic one. Well, that's classified. We got all (laughs) kinds of conversations we could have about classified documents and where they've been found. We could certainly talk about the leak of current classified top secret compartmentalized documents Let's just talk um, about what what it means for something to be classified and how you're thinking about some of these things. Sure. So um, classified documentation, uh, the whole system was developed after World War II to be able to 
um, properly control um, documents. And um, uh, there's three levels. There's uh, confidential, which quite frankly, in my experience, I, I almost never saw something marked confidential. It's almost always marked the next level secret or top secret. And then within the top secret uh, realm, there are what you mentioned, secure compartmentalized information, which um, there's lots of different um, compartments out there, but the whole purpose is to keep it very narrow to those who have a need to know. Um, and uh, the, the SCI term in general means that we're storing the documents in a very particular way. Um, the uh, security apparatus that um, goes into uh, being able to secure it. It's called a secure compartmented information facility or a SCIF. Um, and SCIFs are very expensive to build. Um, and most often you're going to find them in only in federal government facilities. Um, most states have uh, either access to one or um, they were they were allowed to build one so that we could share information post 9-11. Uh, but generally speaking, they're very expensive to um, maintain, to build. So very few um, places have them. Consequently, when you find SCI information outside of a SCIF, um, eyebrows are raised because that's a huge no-no. Um, but the, the other change, you know, a lot of um, of course, the, the fundamentals behind the, the three classifications, um, it was built post-World War II when things were all paper-based and we are now largely electronic. Um, and one could argue we have not done a great job of updating the system uh, to uh, allow for the fact that um, things are mostly electronic and not paper-based, um, though paper, as we have all learned to, uh, recently, um, paper is largely used uh, for senior officials, um, uh, though they, they do now have classified iPads that they can get their briefings on for, through that mechanism. It is usually uh, paper-based. And so anytime you have paper, it's a little bit easier um, uh, to perhaps, uh, you know, escape with it in some form or fashion by taking a picture or um, taking a photocopy, but in general, if you're working within the system and the government and you do not have nefarious purposes, like you learn the rules and, um, sometimes it's annoying, but like, if you grow up in the system, you're, you're kind of used to it. And that's why it's a bit of a shock for those of us that have grown up in the classified system to see either a senior official abusing the system or a 21 year old, um, you know, throwing information out on social media. Um, so it's, uh, it, it is a bit arcane. It probably needs to be updated. We probably do over classify things um, uh, more than we need to, but there is still a need for a classification system. And um, it, it is, it's rather disheartening to see there's been a number of leaks in recent years, uh, really just individuals thinking that it's their job to decide uh, what's right and wrong. And while mm -hmm. um, we have great uh, whistleblower programs, they don't tend to use those. They just tend to take matters into their own hands. And um, I, re I really have a hard time with that. Um, just, that's not to say that the government hasn't done bad things in the past that have needed to be addressed or there there's um, a need for accountability. But uh, the recent leaks, like over the last 10 years, it just seems like the individuals leaking are doing it for their own self-benefit, not because they were actually trying to make a difference in the world.
yeah, their perception of themselves is that they know better than than everyone collectively. And that's not it's it's a very, very challenging season, I think, to be working in the field in which you um, that in which you labor. So we want to talk with you next about um, preventions. I, and I'm going to expand the conversation to like soft target shooting prevention. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. that you recently addressed this on ABC News specifically in relationship to school shootings, but I know people have, you know, their churches in mind or their places of work in mind. So can we take a very brief break? And then when we come back, Elizabeth, will you help us prepare ourselves to, I, I don't know, live with a sense of greater security in the midst of um, what seems like a rising tide of shootings in America? Absolutely. All right. We're talking with Elizabeth Newman. Um, Are you concerned about the soft targets where you spend time, schools, churches, hospitals, places of work? We're going to talk about expanding a conversation about school shooting prevention to all the soft targets where we find ourselves. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Elizabeth Newman um, has served in the Department of Homeland Security. She knows a lot about the challenges that we face as a country in terms of not just the access that people have to guns, but increasingly the way people um, use that access to do harm to others. Let's talk about school shootings, but let's also talk about other soft targets. Elizabeth, when I use the term soft target, what am I talking about and how do we prevent shootings at soft target locations? So um, 20 years ago, post uh, 9-11, um, there was a, a realization that um, the uh, terrorists that want to cause us harm would look for places that were less hardened. So uh, you think about a, a military facility or a government building, those uh, received a lot of attention post 9-11 to harden uh, its exterior, make it harder to enter into. Um, so the places where we need to be able to access relatively easily, uh, frictionlessly, if you will, um, be- are softer by definition. They they don't require us to go through uh, airport level security. Um, they, uh, they, for because of the way that they are designed or their purpose, like the goal is to get people in and out as quickly as possible. So um, traditionally you're thinking grocery stores and movie theaters and any place where commerce is taking place. So malls, um, as well as restaurants, movie theaters. I mean, uh, and what we have seen in the last, um, unfortunately, particularly in the last 10 years, there is no now, there is no place that is safe. Uh, the idea that we've been dealing with school shootings, um, it, it actually goes back decades, but the, the modern version of school shootings, really, we pinpoint to Columbine, which was uh, 98 or 99 um, 
So we've, we've been dealing with that for over 20 years. But in the last 10 years, we've seen grocery stores, Walmarts, Targets, yoga studios, um, banks, most recently, uh, the uh, locations where we have mass shootings. And sometimes those mass shootings are grievance, retaliatory based. Um, uh, the, uh, the bank shooting, for example, appears to have been uh, a retaliation against um, the, the person's employment, the shooter's uh, employer who had fired him. Um, at least that was one, one version of, of the story, and they're still doing investigations, and it takes a long time sometimes to really nail, nail down motivation. But uh, you have those types. Then you also have what we saw last year um, at the Topps grocery store um, where the shooter was uh, racially and ethically or what um, he was, he was uh, motivated by a white supremacist ideology um, and targeting black people uh, because uh, that's what his ideology suggested was the way to uh, purify the world, if you will. Um, So sometimes it's ideological, sometimes it's more retaliatory um, the the ideology is often what fixates us because we're like our human need to understand how so, how somebody can do this. It, it's like it's very deep. Like it just is so shocking to our system. We don't understand why people could possibly uh, cause such devastating harm, and so we tend to fixate on ideology. Um, and what we are learning is that while ideology sometimes plays a role, it it creates a moral justification or a permission structure for people to commit acts of violence. The drivers behind why somebody is looking for that ideology in the first place is it tends to not have anything to do with the ideology and everything to do with um, psychosocial factors in their background. So they usually, um, when they do studies on mass attackers, it's individuals that have experienced a, a loss of belonging or of significance or some sort of personal or group humiliate, humiliation. Mm-hmm. And those factors left unaddressed, if we don't have strong protective factors in our life to counterbalance that, because arguably we all go through uh, moments of crisis where we feel like we don't belong or moments of crisis where we feel like we've lost our sense of significance. Um, but most of us have protective factors in our life that help keep us grounded. But for those that don't have those protective factors, they become much more open to those ideologies or those suggestions that violence is their answer. Um, what's hard is that in the last 10 years, is we, we've just seen exponential increases. Like we're on the eighth year of unprecedented numbers of hate crimes and violence. Um, And it is uh, a a bit baffling uh, as a security professional to, um, to, when you get asked like, well, what's happening? You're like, well, yeah, it is a, it is social media has something to do with it. We're able to spread hate much more quickly, but there's also a sense that like just society is unraveling in a way Mm -hmm. that, um, that is leading to that underlying psychosocial factors that are being unmet and you you add to it COVID and you get this amplification effect of um, great uncertainty, great um, stress and crisis. Um, And I, and a lot of, while there are plenty of examples of middle-aged and older people committing acts of violence, that the area where I'm most concerned is our youth, our youth are, um, and young young adults um, are m- most susceptible, in part because of the life 
development stage that they're going through, they're very susceptible to uh, violent ideologies. And, and, and I, I would say the other reason I like to focus on them is because I feel like parents and coaches and teachers and educators have the opportunity to intervene. And that's, that's really where I want society to start focusing on. It's, it's less on the ideology and more about what can we do to help the young people in our uh, community and our neighborhoods um, to build those protective factors. So when they go through difficult times, their, their answer isn't violence. They have something else to turn to. Um, so one of the organizations that I like, uh, screenhate.org has a whole series of um, su suggestions for parents and coaches and educators and anybody that uh, regularly engages with youth on how to have conversations with uh, teens and young adults. I, I actually encourage young starting the conversation younger. So if you're a parent, you can start this conversation when they're seven, eight, and nine on everything from um, what hate looks like and how to detect uh, harmful um, ideas online that they might run across, um, reminding them that hate-based violence is wrong, um, talking to them about their games, videos, social media, what they're encountering and what it means to them. Um, and then most importantly, it, it will list, it gives a list of concerning behaviors and when you need to reach out to a professional to seek help. The, the most important thing is there's just, it's so prolific. It's almost contagious right now among mm. our young adults and teens that we really can't, we kind of have to overreact. We kind of have to, um, uh, treat every, uh, reference of whether it's self-harm or harm of others seriously and make and get them help um and and find a way to like help the this current generation um move to a, a much healthier path um but that's that would be my encouragement to the to your listeners is go to screenhate.org um there are some other guides the adl puts out a guide the uh, there's a american university's peril p-e-r-i-l they put out a guide for parents and coaches. So there's several organizations that are working on this problem and trying to figure out the best way that we can, uh, as adults, detect concerning behavior and get people help. All right. So the, the best thing that we can do, parents, coaches, educators, youth workers, adult mentors, everybody who has any intersection with young people and young adults, we need to help them. And yes, overreacting is actually the right reaction right now. We need to get them the help that they need. Screenhate.org is the website that um, Elizabeth Newman is recommending today. Also, um, the Peril Guide. Um, I can send you those links if you text me, 877-933-2484. Elizabeth, um, thank you so much for what you do every day and for your willingness to come and help us understand the times in which we live and what we can do. Thanks, Carmen. I appreciate yeah. you uh, taking the time to address this topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Elizabeth Newman, she's a mom. Um, she's a churchgoer. Yes, she's a security analyst. She's a former DHS um, Department of Homeland Security um, a servant of ours and she's a friend of the show Elizabeth Newman screenhate.org is where we're encouraging you to go today to get some resources related to this particular topic you're listening to Mornings with Carmen let's take a break for Breakpoint are you desperate for hope are you desperate for hope are you 
in the midst of suffering, loss, or longing, do you wonder, like, if God is love and God loves me, then why is this happening? How can I know God's presence when he feels so far away? Why is God letting me suffer? What if this never gets better? If you've ever asked questions like this or you're asking them now, if you are desperate for hope, you're going to really enjoy the conversation that we're about to have with Vanitha Reisner. Her, uh, her new study is Desperate for Hope, Questions We Ask God in the Midst of Suffering, Loss, and Longing. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Vanitha Reisner is back. Um, You know her already. Um, You can check out earlier conversations that we've had with her here on Mornings with Carmen. We have walked through fire with her. Now we are going to talk about being desperate for hope, questions we ask God in suffering, loss, and longing. You can find Vanitha and connect with her and these resources at Vanitha.com. Vanitha, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going to read the, um, I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs of the intro, or I'm going to start with paragraph two. I've whispered, cried, and even screamed the questions. Where are you, God? Don't you care that I'm struggling? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why aren't you doing something, anything to help me? I felt so alone in my suffering, distant from God, wondering if my situation would ever change. I asked those questions not only before I met the Lord, but also after I walked with Jesus for years. This is, um, this is real. This is raw. You talk about your own desperation for hope in the midst of suffering, loss, and longing, and you invite us into that conversation in such a faithful way by um, sharing with us the experience of women in the Bible who also suffered um, and lost and longed. Can you just invite us into this study, Desperate for Hope? Yeah. So I I wrote this study, Carmen, because I came to God with all these questions. You know, when my son died, I had so many questions. And I was really reeling from people that would say to me, like, don't ask God questions, just trust God. And I felt that that's what good Christians, quote unquote, had to do. And so it really pulled me away from God because I felt like, wow, God doesn't want my questions. He just wants my, you know, unquestioning faith. And I didn't have that. And so I felt so alone and I felt like my faith was crumbling. And it really was after discovering lament and realizing God wants our questions. I mean, we have the Psalms in which David, who was a man after God's own heart, asked God so many questions. And Job, who was a righteous man, asked God so many questions. And I feel like Christians don't pay attention to that. They don't talk about that very much. And when I discovered it, it changed my faith. It transformed my relationship with God from this, okay, I just have to praise God all the time, and that's all He wants from me, to recognizing that going to him with my questions and trusting him was actually going to lead to a deeper praise of God than I'd ever had before. So I wrote this Bible study because I'm sure 
people are suffering out there right now who are listening, Mm -hmm. who are wondering, how do I get close to God in the midst of this pain? And it's not just to put on a happy face. I kind of sometimes call it like slap a Jesus sticker on our pain. It's to go to God raw and tell him how we feel. And I really believe that is the way to a deeper faith through suffering. Just this morning, um, so many you know people sharing deep prayer concerns, inviting us into the suffering, the loss, the journey. Um, and there's a lot, um, there are a lot of questions in the midst of, let's say, the questions that Deb might be asking right now as her friend Janet um, is losing her fight with leukemia or with Mary, who has a prodigal, who's got a court hearing today. Um, I'm just scrolling through here. Um, Trusting God with my teenage son. Um, His girlfriend broke up with him. He's feeling unworthy. Pray that he would open his heart to Christ um, as his first love. So so many um, people praying for so many things. I know that we have a friend listening right now. He's in his 80s, and, you know, he's— He's wondering whether God will receive him when he arrives in heaven. Like, does God really love me? I mean, people are suffering and struggling and asking all kinds of questions. And the answers that you provide are biblical. First of all, let's start with that. So they're, they're, they're true to who God is. But I think part of what I love about the Desperate for Hope study, Vanitha, is that it leads me to embrace the character and the goodness and the sovereignty of God. There's not a question in there. There's just an observation. Well, I mean, that was my goal in writing this study, Carmen, is that Mm. people would walk away at the end of the day embracing the character and goodness and sovereignty of God. Mm. And I think the way to do that is, is going through your suffering with God, not trying to skate around it. Um, Because I think we have great words for God then, you know, we have quotes and Bible verses, but they aren't in our heart. But when we walk through the suffering and talk to God, as we walk through it, we really do see how good God is in the midst of our pain and how he's faithful. I mean, it's kind of interesting because this morning I was praying about our interview and um, my regular Bible reading plan, I had this verse that I would love to read because it I, I know the verse, it's in the Bible study, but just that God gave it to me in my Bible reading plan today just felt so precious. Um, so would I have a minute to read it right now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it's um, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, and it starts with 8b. Uh, that's where I like to start. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And this passage is so much um, like my Bible study to me that we feel so desperate 
and burdened and overwhelmed that we're despairing of life itself, whether it's our life or the life of someone we love. And yet suffering makes us rely on God. When we are at the end of our rope, and I know there are listeners today that feel like, I I can't do this, whether it's wayward children or friends who are dying or our own health or our own lives falling apart. And God is saying, "I, I bring you sometimes to this place so you know that I am faithful and you can trust me. And I love that Paul talks about the fact that he is delivering us now. He has delivered us and he will deliver us again. So it is a past, present, future that we can put our hope in. And and it just was so perfect for what we were going to talk about today. So I mm. just wanted to share that. I, I, it's it's so spot on. Thank you. Thank you to the Lord for um, bringing it to you this morning. Thank you for um, what you say about this particular passage, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10, in the Desperate for Hope study. Um, but thank you for being sensitive to the Spirit and bringing it forward in our conversation today. We're going to continue talking with Vanitha Reisner. Um, now I know your uh, appetite is whetted, and you are looking forward to this seven-session Bible study. The video access is included in it. There's tons of great resources. There's like a QR code so you can um, have a playlist. I just, I, I just, I love the resources that are included in this and it makes it so accessible and timely and real. Desperate for hope. We're going to continue our conversation with Vanitha Reisner in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. All right, Vanitha Reisner is with us, um, and I want to encourage you to check out everything she's doing at Vanitha, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A, Vanitha.com. We're talking today about her newest seven-week Bible study, Desperate for Hope, Questions We Ask in Suffering, Loss, and Longing. Um, Vanitha, I'm tempted to ask about the three Ps. I also am tempted to just spend some time in Lesson 7 what if this never gets better? So mm. can you just maybe tell us what the three P's are? Because the third one, um, you know, is highlighted in this lesson. But maybe just tell us what the three P's are. And then let's talk about what if this never gets better? Yeah. So the three P's are three anchors that I cling to in my own suffering. And they're woven throughout the Bible study. And they are, the pre- the first one is the presence of God. Or I'll tell you all three. Um, the presence of God knowing that our pain has purpose and then believing in the promise of heaven. And the presence of God is knowing that when God is with us, he will never leave us. And that is where we have hope in the moment, just knowing God is strengthening us and is by our side. And there's this experience with God and suffering that can be in- incredible as we draw near to him in lament often. And then Believing our suffering has a purpose, that it is not meaningless, that God is sovereign over it has changed my experience of suffering because I used to think, well, maybe it's random and maybe God is going to help me through it. But Johnny Erickson Tata has this saying, you know, that is making God Satan's cleanup boy. You know, Satan is done something and God is trying to make the best of a bad situation. And, And that is not true. God is using all of this for our good and for his glory. 
Um, and then the last thing is the promise of heaven, which is where we ultimately put our hope. As Paul says, if we were, um, if this life were all there is, then we would be most to be pitied if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. So realizing ultimately that is where our hope is, is mm-hmm. in heaven. And then, um, so, so the, yeah, and oh. so that gets us to the, if this never gets better, because I do, I, I think, Vanitha, there are, you know, there are times when we're not, we don't experience the deliverance that we ask for, the pain doesn't go away, the disease is not healed, um, death yes. comes. Um, yes, yeah, and, and in the, yeah, if this were all there were, and if this were all we had, I mean, how grievously, desperately sad it would be, but it's not. This is not all there is, and this is not all we have. Amen. Yeah, in the Bible study, I actually talk about Stephen, who was stoned, and, you know, you think somebody, he's at the height of his ministry, he's doing everything, everyone says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, his teaching is amazing, and then he's stoned to death, and for us, we think, how how does that happen? And and you know, young moms die of cancer, and and hard things happen, and yet we see in Stephen's life one that Jesus was standing to receive him into heaven. So you know, most throughout the Bible, we see Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but Jesus was standing when Pete, when Stephen looked into heaven. So God will receive us standing. And the other thing is that God uses what we've been through in ways that we would never see, as we see Stephen's death actually is what spread the church. But the promise of heaven, it really is knowing that forever we will be in eternity with God with unending joy. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. And I feel like at times I think of heaven so theoretically but I actually had a conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata a few weeks ago, and she actually thinks about what her first few minutes in heaven are going to be like. She has an idea, or I mean, obviously she doesn't know at all, but I think that's a really helpful thing, thinking, what is it going to be like? Like, what are all the things that we have wanted and loved, and God is going to be there for us, and it is going to be so joyful, and I think that is the hope we hold on to, because some of us listening we don't have a lot of hope. There's There are people that are dying of cancer listening to this that are thinking this life is not going to bring me a lot more joy in a physical sense, material sense, but yet there is unending joy awaiting just on the other side. And that's really the hope that every single person listening to this who knows Jesus has, which is pretty incredible. It's so good. It's so honest. It's so true. Um, Vanitha, um, when folks want to want to connect with the study and then they want to connect maybe with others doing this, like this would be a great, I mean, you can just do this on your own, um, but this would also be a great study to do um, in companionship with others. But because it's got this video component that everybody can access, like you could actually like have an online group if you, which you could put together you know, with, with friends from far away. Like this doesn't yeah. have to be done, you know, like in the presence of others in a room. Cause I think that there are people listening who are like, I don't have a community of people, but this would be wonderful to do with a community of people. 
So just just talk about the way, um, yeah, the way you envision people using this. That's a great question. Um, I I think I see people one if they don't have a community at all, they can totally do it by themselves. Mm-hmm. It would be good for a summer study if you do have a small community to to just do it with neighbors or people that you know are struggling. But I do think just asking people you know that maybe live different places, like, hey, do you want to just do this study with me? And I'm even thinking about um, offering, you know, maybe putting something on my Facebook um, page oh, yeah, to just see point, if yeah. people want to get together and do that. Because I think it's really nice to talk to other people who are struggling. I mean, that's the one of the gifts God gives us with community is realizing I am not alone there are a lot of other people asking these questions and that sense of not being alone really buoys our faith. So I would highly recommend people to, to try to do that. And even just one or two people, you don't need 20 people, like just one friend to do this with. Often I find those are the deepest, most meaningful conversations. It's just one person who maybe is struggling or maybe is somebody supporting you if you are struggling or somebody you're supporting. I mean, there's people here that are probably walking with people who are going through really hard things. And this would be a good way to guide the conversation because a lot of times we don't know what to say to people. Right. And this is a good way to say, hey, let's just do this. Let's ask these questions together. And one of the things I love about the study that Lifeway did is Every single scripture is written out in a PDF because I feel that when you're suffering or anytime, I don't want to do a scripture chase and look up 20 verses. I'm exhausted at the end of that. I can't even focus on the study. And so if people want that, every single verse is written out. So you don't have to keep flipping through the Bible. You can just look yeah. at it every single verse for every um, every lesson. And so that will make it, I think, a lot more accessible to people, especially if you don't know the Bible that well, and it just feels overwhelming That's to keep flipping around. Yeah, it's it's really, it's ve- accessible would be one of the words I would absolutely use. It's all contained. It's all contained. I can keep all my notes in here as well. Vanitha, thank you. You guys can connect with Vanitha um, online, Vanitha, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A dot com. The study we've been talking about today, Desperate for Hope, Questions We Ask in Suffering, Loss, and Longing. I commend it to you. Vanitha, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Carmen. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. Uh, Yes, for those of you asking, um, if you send me a text message, I'll send you all of the direct links to Vanitha and the study that we just discussed. So just text me 877-933-2484 and I'll shoot those right back to you. Thank you for um, sharing this portion of your day with me. It's precious. It's valuable. Um, We'd love to be praying for you personally in the midst of Whatever you are enduring in life, um, pray with you in the midst of your celebrations as well. You can always text those prayer concerns, or you can give us a call, 877-933-2484. There's also a place at MyFaithRadio.com for you to share your prayers, prayer concerns with us as well. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.